So a week and a half ago, like many of you, I spent my Wednesday morning watching a ceremony of pomp and circumstance, our civil ritual of inauguration. Joseph R. Biden and Kamala D. Harris took their oaths of office and officially became the 46th president and the 49th vice president of the United States. The day was a mix of tradition and strangeness as familiar rituals were enacted in unfamiliar ways, marked by face masks and social distancing and heightened security and an absent outgoing president. And then, into the center of this complicated ceremony stepped a young woman whose presence and purpose was arrestingly clear. 22-year-old Amanda Gorman, the youngest inaugural poet, took the podium. In her recitation of her original work, The Hill We Climb, Miss Gorman gave voice to the moment we were living through with stunning clarity, grace, and hope. Her words captivated the country, drawing praise across the political spectrum. Her forthcoming books shot up the bestseller lists. Her social media accounts exploded. So why was that? What was it about Amanda Gorman's performance that brought her instant celebrity status? I don't think it's that America overnight rediscovered a love of poetry. It wasn't just like the brilliance of the written words that moved the nation. It was the voice speaking those words. Miss Gorman was speaking of a collective experience, but bringing her whole self forward as she did, taking her unique place in the climbing of our hill. It was a moment of emergence of a young woman who understood something of herself, understood something of what she was called to bring into the world, taking her place and embodying that reality. In her own words, this was a moment, quote, where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. We don't always recognize these moments of emergence when they're happening, either to others or to ourselves. But when we can see them for what they are, they can take our breath away. When we can move with them, they can bring change into the world. Well, this morning we're continuing our current teaching series, a series we're calling The Stories That Sustain Us. And in this series, we're returning to the Gospels to look at the life of Jesus, to read some of these stories afresh and consider what sustenance they might bring us in this challenging season we're enduring. Two weeks ago, we looked at a story from the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And as we saw, that story was John's opportunity to reveal something particular about Jesus and frame the rest of his telling of the gospel. But we don't have just one account of the good news of Jesus. We have four. And as we'll see throughout the series, each version brings us different nuances and colors to help us understand 
who Jesus really was, what he brings to sustain a weary world. So today we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And as we do, we'll look at a story that I think serves a similar purpose as the wedding at Cana does for John. This is the story Luke chooses to kick off Jesus's ministry and tell us something unique about how he understands Jesus. Now, you might remember from our overview last time, Luke is one of the three synoptics. That's the three accounts that share a lot of the same material, but at times with different emphases, different details, as each author highlights aspects that they feel are significant. So this story we're looking at today in Luke falls into that category. It seems to be parallel to a story told in Mark and Matthew, but in Luke's telling, the story functions somewhat differently. Luke seems to have moved it towards the front of the narrative, perhaps to like let it set up the rest of what's coming in a unique way. And he gives us details that the others don't. So in the Gospel of Luke, just a little bit of setup, our story comes early into the narrative of Jesus's life. We've seen a prologue, stories of his miraculous birth, a story of his boyhood. And then we briefly see Jesus as an adult come to be baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan, after which he endures 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And from there, Luke tells us this. So picking up in Luke 4, verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And report about him spread through all the surrounding country, and he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So we'll pause there. We're going to read a bit more later. But here, let's just look at what we've read so far. We have this story about Jesus coming into his own. You could say he's having his own Amanda Gorman kind of moment. He is emerging as a leader. He has cultivated a sense of purpose. He has a vision of who he is and what he is here to do in the world. And he's starting to speak it out clearly. So with that in mind, this morning, I just want to explore three questions about this moment of emergence for Jesus. So the three questions we're going to be looking at are, first, what was Jesus declaring about himself? in this Nazareth teaching. What's he trying to say? Two, how did he get there? What led him to make that kind of declaration on that day? And three, how did people respond? All right, first we're gonna focus on the first two and then we'll read along a little bit more to understand about the third. So first, what was Jesus declaring? 
This is one of the main things that's unique about how Luke tells this story of Jesus preaching at Nazareth. He shares some of the actual content of the sermon itself, this detail that Matthew and Mark both leave out. Luke fills the scene out. He shares with it the scripture being read and how Jesus seems to use that scripture to articulate his own self-understanding. So what does the content that Luke shares with us tell us about how Jesus is identifying? Well, the text comes to us from Isaiah, predominantly Isaiah 61. And it seems to have a line specifically about oppression that's been included from a few chapters before in Isaiah 58. Both Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61 are the, from the part of the prophetic book that emerged during the exile, a season in the biblical narrative we've explored a lot here at Haven this year. So during that long captivity in Babylon, prophetic voices added to the original book of Isaiah with a vision of res restoration, liberation, deliverance from the pain of exile. It's a vision of God coming with justice to bring healing and redemption to those who have been oppressed and neglected, to bring blessing and divine presence to those who felt abandoned by God. Isaiah speaks of the year of the Lord's favor which is reaching back into Israel's history to a time in which God had declared a release from debts, economic freedom. Every 50 years, the land was to be returned, redistributed to the families it had once belonged to so that everyone, every household had their own allotment. Everyone who had what they needed to live freely. Debts were forgiven. Those who had become indentured servants were released. It was a practice that was, had long now been neglected. But in these prophetic words, the prophet was announcing God's intention to bring that kind of radical release and restoration on a massive scale once again. When is, now, when Israel had had kings like David, they had been called God's anointed ones. People set apart for special roles to work with the divine. In the words of Isaiah, the prophet imagines God sending their spirit to anoint a new leader, a, new, a leader that will enact this jubilee kind of deliverance. The word for God's anointed in Hebrew is where we get the word Messiah. The word for it in Greek is where we get the word Christ. So Jesus didn't choose this text simply to tell us like what he cares about or hopes for. By reading this clear messianic message and then saying, this is now being fulfilled with Jesus's presence emerging as a young leader. leader. He was making a bold, audacious claim. He was saying, I have been anointed by God and I am here to bring liberation, justice, and healing. I am here to do the work of Jubilee. I am here to do the work of Jubilee. Now, this isn't the only place that Luke depicts Jesus pointing to these messianic texts to understand what he's up to. 
A few chapters later, Luke tells us a story about John the Baptist. And at this point, Jesus has been making the rounds, preaching sermons, performing miracles. And John, who personally had felt called to prepare the way for God's anointed one, but is now in prison for speaking out against the political leader, Herod, John sends word through his followers to Jesus asking, if Jesus is indeed the one he'd been preparing people for. And Jesus responds by once again pointing to those words of Isaiah. Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Look at what I'm doing, Jesus is saying. Your answer is there. The proof is in the pudding. The jubilee hope that Isaiah dreamed of is coming to pass. Judge for yourself what that means. So in our story, we see Jesus, this humble tradesperson, likely a builder, like his father Joseph had been, walk into his local synagogue where he'd grown up, and after he's just started to make a stir in the region as a, as a new spiritual teacher, for the first time, he steps into that kind of role in his hometown community. And at that moment, he stands up and makes this audacious claim about himself and what he's there to do. He now knows who he is, and he's ready to say it. He's ready to live it. I want you to think for a moment about your own story. Where have you experienced moments of emergence? Have you had places where you felt real clarity about who you are and what you have to bring into the world? Have you had seasons where you've begun to embody that identity in a real way or enact that mission? Even though none of us are Jesus and none of us will identify, I think, as the Messiah, we all are called as individuals and as collectives to bring our full selves forward as Jesus had done with purpose. Christian tradition holds that the same Holy Spirit that alighted on Jesus at his baptism is available to each of us too. That we too are set apart in unique ways to bless the world we inhabit and participate in the redemption of creation. So what does that look like for each of us? What might it look like for us to come into our own strength to take our unique place? In Nazareth, Jesus declares that he is anointed by God to minister first and foremost to the poor and oppressed and bring justice, healing, and liberation to the world around him. That is what he declares about himself. Which brings us to our second question. How did he get there? What set of forces enabled Jesus, the tradesperson, to discover and step into that power within himself in such a clear, confident way? Luke doesn't give us a lot to work with, but I think we do get some clues. Clues that enable Jesus to step into his own power and calling. Forces that might be instructive for us as we seek to do the same. So we see our first clue 
when Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, lingering at the temple in Jerusalem as his family traveled there for a festival. And in the caravan home, his terrified parents realize he's not with their group, and they return to Jerusalem to find their boy debating scripture with religious scholars. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He asks them. Already we see him as a child, discovering something unique about himself and trying it out, exploring it more. This is a moment in Jesus's development. We might call it a moment of formation. Then about two decades later, Jesus appears again, this time to be baptized like many other people in his day by John in the Jordan. But when Jesus is baptized, something powerful happens, something unique. He experiences that spirit of God alighting on him like a dove landing on his shoulder. He hears a voice speaking words of truth and blessing. You are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. This is a powerful moment too. We might call it a moment of confirmation. Jesus' identity as the divine son is confirmed. And then after Jesus is blessed in this way, he's immediately drawn into the desert where Luke tells us that for 40 days he is tempted by the devil. Jesus goes from like an ultimate high in his baptism to a deep low, from a mountaintop to the crucible. But that testing, though a struggle, seems to serve a purpose again and again. Jesus is given opportunities to examine his own interests, to use his power to save and benefit himself. And again and again, he resists that. As he does this, his conviction perhaps deepens. He comes to a truer understanding of what his call is about and whom it is meant to serve. We might call this a moment of maturation maturation. Jesus doesn't simply emerge at age 30, ready to perform miracles and announce himself as God's anointed. Before that sermon in Nazareth, he's been shaped by moments along the way, moments of formation, moments of confirmation, moments of maturation. Formation, confirmation, maturation. Like Jesus, none of us emerge overnight either. So what moments of formation, what moments of confirmation, what moments of maturation have prepared us to bring who we are fully forward into the world? If you're not sure really how to articulate your own identity or your own contribution in a bigger mission of re redemption, Perhaps it might just be helpful to turn your attention to the ways you've been formed, ways things in you have been confirmed, ways life through trials and temptations has tested you, matured you. Perhaps examining your own journey of formation, confirmation, maturation in your life might give clarity to the places you have grown the places you are emerging.
perhaps they'll inform what it is that you are here to declare. So we've considered what Jesus's declaration was about as well as how he got there. Now let's turn to the third question, how people responded. And to get a sense of that, we're going to follow along in Luke's account, picking up at verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And if you don't know the story, God miraculously provided them food. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, who was cured of his leprosy. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage, and they got up and they drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. So, how did folks respond to Jesus' emergence? I think it's fair to say, not great. Not great. By the end of the story, Jesus' hometown community has become an angry mob trying to throw him off a cliff. So why is that? Well, things start off pleasant enough. Clearly, the people were impressed by Jesus' preaching, whatever they thought of what he was saying, there were legit skills there to be admired. They were amazed at his gracious words, Luke tells us. But in their amazement, there seems to be a hint of skepticism that Jesus picks up on and understands perhaps more than the people do themselves. Isn't this Joseph's son, they start to say? Don't we know this kid? Didn't he play with our kids growing up? Didn't he help you build your house last year? Did you know he could preach like that? And Jesus seems to understand that what they might think is just a compliment, the, the local boy does well story, that can bring with it a resistance to really allowing Jesus to emerge. And Jesus calls them out on it, pointing to the truth that this is actually an age-old challenge that goes far beyond this little local group here in Nazareth. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown, he tells them. And to back him up, Jesus points to two stories of prophets from their Jewish sacred text, stories from their shared history about seasons in which prophets had lived amongst them, and the people they were sent to testify to ignored those prophetic calls. The people Elijah and Elisha were sent to didn't want to receive their words from God. They couldn't acknowledge the anointing on Elijah or Elisha, and so they missed out. God was doing life-changing things in the world through these prophets and their, the miracles that Jesus described were blessings, but they came to people outside of Israel in those cases, Gentiles who, 
who were open to the work of God that these prophets were here to enact. In the same way, Jesus senses that they're, these neighbors of his from Nazareth, they think they know him. They think they understand him. They think that because they know his parents, because they saw him as a boy, because they watched him grow up, they get him. And so when it really comes down to it, they might have this sense like, oh, sure, Jesus can preach it a nice sermon. But they don't actually buy it. They might have heard about some of these miracles he's starting to, to do in Capernaum, but they're not convinced. Let's see it, Jesus. Heal yourself, doctor. Prove to us who you really are, who you say you are. But Jesus knows that as long as they are looking at him through their own assumptions and expectations, they can't fully see his emergence. They don't know all of the moments of formation and confirmation and maturation that have brought Jesus to this day. They just see another boy from Nazareth. And when Jesus points that out, he touches a nerve. Immediately, the crowd turns from saying superficial but flattering things into a murderous mob. Filled with rage, they take him to the cliff and try to throw him off. But miraculously, wondrously, he escapes unharmed. The story, in a way, serves in Luke to be like a preview of the bigger story he's here to tell. Jesus is sent with the power of God to do redemptive work, but those who he is sent to ultimately reject his prophetic call. They do become a murderous mob that conspires to kill him. And yet the divine, not the mob, ultimately has the last word. Though in the bigger story, Jesus is killed with divine power, he rises again. As we end, considering this last question of like how people responded to Jesus' declaration, I think there's something profound that is both an encouragement and a warning to us. There's an encouragement and a warning as we look at this pattern playing out in Jesus's life of him emerging and those around him rejecting his emergence. First, let's consider the encouragement. Though hopefully none of us have found ourselves ever ready to be like thrown from a cliff, I think many of us may resonate with the pushback we can feel from those closest to us when we have begun to emerge. We often see it in adolescence. I remember in middle school when I was started having opportunities to like sing solos or win essay contests, opportunities to like excel at something. The adults in my life praised me. They were encouraging. But many of the, my peers were indifferent or even cruel, making fun of me for the thing I had just done well. Now, as a parent, having seen one child survive middle school so far, it's clear to me that the pattern persists. But it's not just in adolescence we experience that kind of pushback from those who think they know us, but might not understand what's forming or maturing within us. It's the reason that for those of us who are LGBT, LGBTQ, family members can be some of the hardest to come out to. When we experience a spiritual awakening, a conversion, our friend, our lover, our partner might not get it, might not support it. 
if we start to have our eyes opened to toxic forces in the systems that have shaped us, forces like white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, it may be folks like our siblings who feel most confused about that, even enraged that we no longer accept our shared family history as altogether good and the way we want to live going forward. The encouragement for us in those moments of emergence is not to be deterred by the skepticism and resistance of those who think they know us, but don't understand what's emerging within us. Like Jesus, we are encouraged to attend to the anointing of the divine spirit and allow that which God is doing within us, give us the resolve and divine empowerment to calmly walk through that resistance and continue on our way. There's also a warning here. The story invites us not just to connect with Jesus, but to put ourselves in the shoes of those in Nazareth who are ready to push him off a cliff. We're invited to consider where in our own lives might we be resistant to the emergence of others in our closest communities? How might our own fears or assumptions block our capacity to bless and move with another's emergence? What parent among us has a child asking to see them in a new way, the way they're discovering they really are? Who among us has a spouse or partner or close friend that we are shutting down in some way because we've been too close to really see the new thing coming forward in them and bless it? Is there a change happening in someone close to us that perhaps threatens our own understanding that we've always taken for granted? What assumptions, what preconceptions do we need to lay down so that we can honor the places of formation, confirmation, maturation in others' stories and bless them becoming their full actualized selves. Friends, we've been through a period in the last months and years which has had all of our systems under deep stress. Many still are. There is so much that has been wounded in recent years on so many levels. There is so much as we move forward from this pandemic and from this last presidential term that we need to rebuild. There is so much that needs healing. There is so much we are still confronting. We can only experience the jubilee Jesus was enacting if all of us are fully released into who we are made to be. That means receiving our own anointing and emerging as well as honoring the emergence of one another. May we Haven be a community that does that well together. And may we bring our emerged selves to the world around us and encourage more of it wherever we are. For as Amanda Gorman says, when day comes, we step out of the shade aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light 
if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Amen. Amen. Let me just take a moment to pray for us, and then we'll go into our breakout rooms for some conversation. God, we want to stand with you in those places where you are calling us forward to proclaim good news to the poor, release from the captives, the year of the Lord's favor, jubilee in our midst. I sincerely believe that that spirit that worked within you, O oh Jesus, is with us today. And our world needs it as much, if not more, than ever before. Would you anoint each of us? Would you call us forward? Would you call our community, our collective, into that work in a deeper, sustained way? Would you remind us how we have been formed, confirmed, matured for this moment, for this day? Would that knowledge give us courage, even in the face of resistance from those at times we are closest to? And where our own eyes are closed to one another, or to others in our communities, would you open on? Would you give us grace not to throw one another off cliffs, but to bless the work 